Chapter sixty one and sixty two of the Way of All Flesh. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rhonda Fetterman. The Way of All Flesh by Samuel Butler. Chapter sixty one. Pryor had done well to warn Ernest against promiscuous house to house visitation. He had not gone outside Mrs. Jupp's street door, and yet what had been the result? Mr. Holt had put him in bodily fear. Mr. and Mrs. Baxter had nearly made a Methodist of him. Mr. Shaw had undermined his faith in the resurrection. Miss Snow's charms had ruined, or would have done so but for an accident, his moral character. As for Miss Maitland, he had done his best to ruin hers, and had damaged himself gravely and irretrievably in consequence. The only lodger who had done him no harm was the bellows-mender, whom he had not visited. Other young clergymen, much greater fools in many respects than he, would not have got into these scrapes. He seemed to have developed an aptitude for mischief almost from the day of his having been ordained. He could hardly preach without making some horrid faux pas. He preached one Sunday morning when the bishop was at his rector's church, and made his sermon turn upon the question what kind of little cake it was that the widow of Zarephath had intended making when Elijah found her gathering a few sticks. He demonstrated that it was a seed-cake. The sermon was really very amusing, and more than once he saw a smile pass over the sea of faces underneath him. The bishop was very angry, and gave my hero a severe reprimand in the vestry after the service was over. The only excuse he could make was that he was preaching extempore, had not thought of this particular point till he was actually in the pulpit, and had been carried away by it. Another time he preached upon the barren fig-tree, and described the hopes of the owner as he watched the delicate blossom unfold, and give promise of such beautiful fruit in autumn. Next day he received a letter from a botanical member of his congregation, who explained to him that this could hardly have been, inasmuch as the fig produces its fruit first, and blossoms inside the fruit or so nearly, so that no flower is perceptible to an ordinary observer. This last, however, was an accident which might have happened to any one but a scientist, or an inspired writer. The only excuse I can make for him is that he was very young, not yet four-and-twenty, and that in mind as in body, like most of those who in the end come to think for themselves, he was a slow grower. By far the greater part, moreover, of his education had been an attempt not so much to keep him in blinkers as to gouge his eyes out altogether. But to return to my story. It transpired afterwards that Miss Maitland had had no intention of giving Ernest in charge when she ran out of Mrs. Jupp's house. She was running away because she was frightened but almost the first person whom she ran against had happened to be a policeman of a serious turn of mind, who wished to gain a reputation for activity. He stopped her, questioned her, frightened her still more, 
and it was he rather than Miss Maitland who insisted on giving my hero in charge to himself and another constable. Townley was still in Mrs. Jupp's house when the policeman came. He had heard a disturbance, and going down to Ernest's room while Miss Maitland was out of doors, had found him lying, as it were, stunned at the foot of the moral precipice over which he had that moment fallen. He saw the whole thing at a glance, but before he could take action, the policeman came in, and action became impossible. He asked Ernest who were his friends in London. Ernest at first wanted not to say, but Townley soon gave him to understand that he must do as he was bid, and selected myself from the few whom he had named. "'Writes for the stage, does he?' said Townley. "'Does he write comedy?' Ernest thought Townley meant that I ought to write tragedy, and said he was afraid I wrote burlesque. "'Oh, come, come,' said Townley. "'That will do famously. I will go and see him at once.' But on second thoughts he determined to stay with Ernest, and go with him to the police court. So he sent Mrs. Jupp for me. Mrs. Jupp hurried so fast to fetch me that in spite of the weather's being still cold, she was giving out, as she expressed it, in streams. The poor old wretch would have taken a cab, but she had no money and did not like to ask Townley to give her some. I saw that something very serious had happened, but was not prepared for anything so deplorable as what Mrs. Jupp actually told me. As for Mrs. Jupp, she said her heart had been jumping out of its socket and back again ever since. I got her into a cab with me, and we went off to the police station. She talked without ceasing. "'And if the neighbors do say cruel things about me, I'm sure it ain't no thanks to him if they're true. Mr. Pontifex never took a bit of notice of me, no more than if I had been his sister. Oh, it's enough to make anyone's backbone curdle. Then I thought perhaps my rose might get on better with him, so I set her to dust him and clean him, as though I were busy, and gave her such a beautiful clean new penny, but he never took no notice of her no more than he did of me.' and she didn't want no compliment, neither. She wouldn't have taken not a shilling from him, though he had offered it. But he didn't seem to know anything at all. I can't make out what the young men are coming to. I wish the horn may blow for me and the worms take me this very night, if it's not enough to make a woman stand before God and strike the one half on em silly to see the way they goes on and makes an honest girl, has to go home night after night without so much as a four-penny bit, and paying three and sixpence a week rent, and not a shelf or cupboard in the place and a dead wall in front of the window. "'It's not Mr. Pontifex,' she continued, "'that's so bad. He's good at heart. He never says nothing unkind. And then there's his dear eyes.' but when I speak about that to my Rose, she calls me an old fool and says I ought to be polaxed. It's that prior that I can't abide. Oh, he! He likes to wound a woman's feelings, he do, and to chuck anything in her face, he do. He likes to wind a woman up and to wound her down. Mrs. Jupp pronounced wound as though it rhymed to sound. It's a gentleman's place to soothe a woman. But he— He'd like to tear her hair out by handfuls, 
why he told me to my face that I was a-gettin' old. Old, indeed! There's not a woman in London knows my age except Mrs. Davis down in the old Kent Road, and beyond a haricot vein in one of my legs, I'm as young as ever I was. Old, indeed! There's many a good tune played on an old fiddle. I hate his nasty insinuendos. Even if I had wanted to stop her, I could not have done so. She said a great deal more than I have given above. I have left out much because I could not remember it, but still more because it was really impossible for me to print it. When we got to the police station I found Townley and Ernest already there. The charge was one of assault, but not aggravated by serious violence. Even so, however, it was lamentable enough and we both saw that our young friend would have to pay dearly for his inexperience. We tried to bail him out for the night, but the inspector would not accept bail, so we were forced to leave him. Townley then went back to Mrs. Jupp's to see if he could find Miss Maitland and arrange matters with her. She was not there, but he traced her to the house of her father, who lived at Camberwell. The father was furious and would not hear of any intercession on Townley's part. He was a dissenter, and glad to make the most of any scandal against a clergyman. Townley, therefore, was obliged to return unsuccessful. Next morning Townley, who regarded Ernest as a drowning man, who must be picked out of the water somehow or other if possible, irrespective of the way in which he got into it, called on me and we put the matter into the hands of one of the best-known attorneys of the day. I was greatly pleased with Townley, and thought it due to him to tell him what I had told no one else. I mean that Ernest would come into his aunt's money in a few years' time, and would therefore then be rich. Townley was doing all he could before this, but I knew that the knowledge I had imparted to him would make him feel as though Ernest was more one of his own class, and therefore had a greater claim upon his good offices. As for Ernest himself, his gratitude was greater than could be expressed in words. I have heard him say that he can call to mind many moments, each one of which might well pass for the happiest of his life, but that this night stands clearly out as the most painful that he ever passed, yet so kind and considerate was Townley that it was quite bearable. But with all the best wishes in the world, neither Townley nor I could do much to help beyond giving our moral support. Our attorney told us that the magistrate before whom Ernest would appear was very severe on cases of this description, and that the fact of his being a clergyman would tell against him. Ask for no remand, he said, and make no defense. We will call Mr. Pontifex's rector and you two gentlemen as witnesses for previous good character. These will be enough. Let us then make a profound apology and beg the magistrate to deal with the case summarily instead of sending it for trial. If you can get this, believe me, your young friend will be better out of it than he has any right to expect. Chapter 62 This advice, besides being obviously sensible, would end in saving Ernest both time and suspense of mind, so we had no hesitation in adopting it. 
The case was called on about eleven o'clock, but we got it adjourned till three, so as to give time for Ernest to set his affairs as straight as he could, and to execute a power of attorney enabling me to act for him as I should think fit while he was in prison. Then all came out about Pryor and the College of Spiritual Pathology. Ernest had even greater difficulty in making a clean breast of this than he had in telling us about Miss Maitland. But he told us all, and the upshot was that he had actually handed over to Pryor every half-penny that he had then possessed, with no other security than Pryor's I.O.U.s for the amount. Ernest, though still declining to believe that Pryor could be guilty of dishonorable conduct, was becoming alive to the folly of what he had been doing. He still made sure, however, of recovering, at any rate, the greater part of his property as soon as Pryor should have had time to sell. Townley and I were of a different opinion, but we did not say what we thought. It was dreary work waiting all the morning amid such unfamiliar and depressing surroundings. I thought how the psalmist had exclaimed with quiet irony, One day in thy courts is better than a thousand, and I thought that I could utter a very similar sentiment in respect of the courts in which Townley and I were compelled to loiter. At last, about three o'clock, the case was called on, and we went round to the part of the court which is reserved for the general public, while Ernest was taken into the prisoner's dock. As soon as he had collected himself sufficiently, he recognized the magistrate as the old gentleman who had spoken to him in the train on the day he was leaving school, and saw, or thought he saw, to his great grief, that he too was recognized. Mr. Ottery, for this was our attorney's name, took the line he had proposed. He called no other witnesses than the rector, Townley, and myself, and threw himself on the mercy of the magistrate. When he had concluded, the magistrate spoke as follows. Ernest Pontifex, yours is one of the most painful cases that I have ever had to deal with. You have been singularly favored in your parentage and education. You have had before you the example of blameless parents, who doubtless instilled into you from childhood the enormity of the offense which by your own confession you have committed. You were sent to one of the best public schools in England. It is not likely that in the healthy atmosphere of such a school as Roughborough you could have come across contaminating influences. You were probably... I may say certainly, impressed at school with the heinousness of any attempt to depart from the strictest chastity until such time as you had entered into a state of matrimony. At Cambridge you were shielded from impurity by every obstacle which virtuous and vigilant authorities could advise, and even had the obstacles been fewer, your parents probably took care that your means should not admit of your throwing money away upon abandoned characters. At night proctors patrolled the street and dogged your steps if you tried to go into any haunt where the presence of vice was suspected. By day the females who were admitted within the college walls were selected mainly on the score of age and ugliness. It is hard to see what more can be done for any young man than this. 
for the last four or five months you have been a clergyman, and if a single impure thought had still remained within your mind, ordination should have removed it. Nevertheless, not only does it appear that your mind is as impure as though none of the influences to which I have referred to have been brought to bear upon it, but it seems as though their only result has been this, that you have not even the common sense to be able to distinguish between a respectable girl and a prostitute. If I were to take a strict view of my duty, I should commit you for trial. But in consideration of this being your first offense, I shall deal leniently with you and sentence you to imprisonment with hard labor for six calendar months. Townley and I both thought there was a touch of irony in the magistrate's speech, and that he could have given a lighter sentence if he would, but that was neither here nor there. We obtained leave to see Ernest for a few minutes before he was removed to Coldbath Fields, where he was to serve his term, and found him so thankful to have been summarily dealt with that he hardly seemed to care about the miserable plight in which he was to pass the next six months. When he came out, he said, he would take what remained of his money, go off to America or Australia, and never be heard of more. We left him full of this resolve, I to write to Theobald, and also to instruct my solicitor to get Ernest's money out of Pryor's hands, and Townley to see the reporters and keep the case out of the newspapers. He was successful as regards all the higher-class papers. There was only one journal, and that of the lowest class, which was incorruptible. End of chapter 62 Recording by Rhonda Fetterman